are back with another episode of Underrated. I'm Lefty. And I'm Bo. How are you doing today? It's been a busy week. It's been a busy week. Yeah, Lefty, it feels like a long time since we've, uh, you know, gotten together on the show. You know, lots happened in the sports world. Yeah, yeah. I uh, have come back from the brink of death, so... <laughs> that's right yeah you made your full you made your full uh covid recovery you look oh yeah uh, oh yeah you, you look lively again you got blood yeah. flowing through your uh <laughs> your veins <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah um you know there's lots of lots of exciting stuff in the world uh especially mm-hmm. with the world cup uh really exciting games today um we almost saw both germany and spain go down which uh would have been great for about everybody in the world except for sure Spaniards and Germans. <laughs> but, uh, we, we won't dive too deep into that this week. You know, we've got a special episode next week that's a little more World Cup focused. Oh, yeah. But I did want to talk about some World Cup stuff, specifically stuff happening north of the border. You know, Canada lost their third game today, mm-hmm. uh, closing the book on a tournament in which they were expected to, you know, kind of compete for a spot in the next round. Uh, sure. And in their second game, they they jumped to a quick league lead with Alfonso Davies scoring the first ever goal for Canadians in World Cup history. Yeah, uh, you know, despite that historic moment, not everyone was happy with Davies. Have you seen much about this? No, I just I saw the final score, uh, but I did not see too much, uh, you know, on Davies. Yeah. So after these tough losses, some in the Canadian media have criticized Davies for his lack of openness and reception to questions after these games. Mm. Um, With Chris Jones of CBC Sports writing that it is Davies, quote, responsibility having benefited from a federally funded program in Canada soccer to help promote the sport, especially at a time when so many eyes are on it. When you're wearing a Canadian shirt, you're no longer a private enterprise. You're part of the public trust. Um, It's a pretty gross quote to me. Uh, on its surface, it kind of looks like Jones is saying that uh, Davies specifically, you know, a refu- refugee who came to Canada to escape the Liberian Civil War, kind of right. owes Canada for taking him in and helping him become a star. Sure. Um, but I'm, I'm more curious about your thoughts about the social contract between athletes and the public more generally. Do you think athletes are indebted to fans in some way? You know, I, I don't. I don't. And I think that um, I think there's this false responsibility that's put on. You know, anyone in the public eye, especially athletes, that um, no matter what they're going through, uh, good or bad, that there's this requirement to be extroverted, to go through this process. And that, like you just said, the statement really sounds like you you owe us, right? You have to go out and do this. And I don't agree with that whatsoever. I think it's very hard already to live life almost completely in the public eye especially being on a stage like this and having to go out there, um, after a, um, you know, after a a tough loss, uh, I think that that's very difficult and it's, there's a, there's a lack of empathy, but no, in general, I mean, who knows what the folks are going through? Who knows what, uh, you know, an athlete is going through mentally or emotionally. I just think that you should be able to walk away from the mic and not be judged for it sorry right yeah absolutely there's no especially on the national stage right i mean obviously there are different requirements that go into playing for a club yeah Um, there's there's actual contractual agreements there that that maybe you do agree to a specific number of you know press conferences and whatnot but when you're playing to represent your country um i think that the the 
the requirements and the expectations should be significantly lower. That's that's not a thing that's required of anyone, um, and it's a thing that, that they're doing simply because they want to. Sure, I I think from my perspective, if I'm looking at it, if I have someone who's a representation of an organization or a national team on no matter what stage it is, if they are in some sort of state that may not be viewed as acceptable by the majority of the public eye, the last thing I want them to do is be in front of a mic, right? Yeah. I yeah. think that they, you know, I, I think anybody um, in an advisory role would always say, take a step back, you know? So I just, yeah. I, I don't feel like uh, that's, that's, it's fair. Yeah. And in this, this specific case, it's, it's really self-serving by journalists, right? Sure. You know, they they want to immediately ask Davies questions after, you know, he misses a penalty that, that, you know, might have changed the outcome of a game. Um, right. You know, what what do you want to hear from that player that, that isn't some, you know, five-second soundbite that's going to make somebody sound bad? I think it's the ultimate, you know, uh, kicking a horse when it's down, right? Yeah. You're coming yeah. off a tough loss, and now you don't want to answer questions, so it's changed the perception of Canada. You? Yeah. One yeah, single yeah. person? One person I, is doing a disservice to the, the soccer in the entire country because they waited 24 hours or 48 hours to do a press conference. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's the, it's, it's really the worst part of, of the media. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's really and, and what again, you're seeing there. I, I think the undertones here of the fact that, uh, you know, Davies is, uh, you know, an, a refugee from Africa. Um, sure. Of being somehow indebted to the, the Canadian program is, is right. You know, kind right. of gross and it's in and of itself, but. Oh, again, definitely. The, if you look a little bit deeper, it's you know you always to this you would never have this opportunity uh, had you not been here so you know i mean already yeah. making that assumption that that would happen i completely agree with you i i think it's a very unfair statement and i you know already dealing with a lot of emotions you know um with, with this game and and just the performance so far it's it's very difficult very unfair oh yeah definitely definitely um Kind of pivoting to the other kind of football, um, it was announced today that the Ivy League would be wrapping up their football season by participating in what has been deemed the Dream Bowl. You heard about this? So I've heard of the Dream Bowl. Um, haven't heard too much about the, anything else. Yeah, so 52 of the best players from across the conference are going to be traveling to Japan in January mm -hmm. to play an all-star game of players from the Japanese National Football Association. Wow. You know, this, is, this is just another event in a recent string of high-profile American football games being played outside of mainland U.S. Right. Um, do you buy this level of widespread interest in American football? Do you uh, envision much growth there, or do you think it's more of a novelty? No, you know, it's, it's for me, I've seen the failure of NFL Europe. Um, I've seen, you know, the Canadian Football League uh, go up and down. I think that the NFL is... Uh, what we can consider a local product. Yes, I think it's fun for fans to go to Wembley and see a game a couple times a year. But I think overall, stretching out, um, I, I I honestly, in my opinion, no, I don't buy it. I don't think that there is a, a strong enough interest and enough coverage um, where you could consistently attract folks, you know, um, yeah, to events yeah. out there. I just, I, I feel like... Um, there are many other sports, like even just talking Japan, we're talking about, you know, um, international football. We're also talking about rugby. We're talking about baseball. 
yeah, yeah. I, I, I think American football would be absolutely at the bottom of everyone's interest, you know, list. Yeah. 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 You know, well, and what's, like inter- what's interesting is that um, in this article, it, it stated that some of the, the Japanese all-stars uh, will actually be Americans who are playing abroad. Um, so that kind of, I mean, yeah. obviously this is a really cool opportunity for a lot of, you know, the Ivy League players who, you know, don't typically get to compete on, on a larger stage. Sure. But at the same time, uh, yeah, I don't buy that interest either. Right. Yeah. W- yeah. W- one thing I'm also kind of curious about is how these kind of more progressive countries in Europe and Asia will respond in terms of regulation to the mm-hmm. game, to a game that is detrimental to the players. There's no doubt about that. Right. Will will there be some kind of, you know, kind of government pushback? Sure. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. That's a really good point. I, you know, I didn't even think about that, you know, aspect of it. But uh, I agree with you. Um, unfortunately, with American football and the sport itself, there's just a lot of downside in regards to. I, I think really the United States is the only country <laughs> that yeah, doesn't yeah. recognize, you know, uh, the majority of the the health risks of playing yeah, a game, yeah. even though there's constant you know advocacy against say for instance turf or you know yeah. uh the ongoing fight and argument about cte and you know pads and different things like that but um i agree with you i yeah I'm, i yeah. would be curious to see what yeah what i mean happen. like if you're a fan in japan and uh, of american football in japan or in germany or the uk you could turn on you know american media today and see two real glaring examples of why people shouldn't really be playing football. I mean, you, right, you see right. Antonio Brown again, uh, uh, and who, the news, who, yeah. who lots of people claim, um, with some evidence, um, was drastically, you know, changed mentally after sustaining multiple hard hits, oh, without a doubt. Um, and again, is in the news with an arrest warrant for some assault charges sure. against him. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also. Um, we won't dive too deep into it, but you know, you also can see Herschel Walker talking. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We won't dive too deep into that, but, uh, you know, my personal phone number, um, whoever had it before was obviously a pretty strong conservative and, uh, moved from my area to, uh, the state of Georgia at some point. Uh. So I, you know, I'm getting the NRA alerts, uh, you know, spam texts Ooh. and the Herschel Walker spam. Te- it's been pretty, I'm blocking a different number every couple <laughs> of days. So, you know, that's, oh. that's what's happening. You know, speaking of, of, of diving deep into things, is there somebody you wanted to talk about today? Yeah. You know, Lefty, uh, when you and I first talked about the idea for this podcast, you know, we had some very specific ideas about how we wanted to, you know, really approach this body of work. Right? Yeah, totally. You know, uh, obviously a big part of that is recognizing athletes whose stories, in our opinion, need to be retold. And it's, it's not necessarily all about statistics and it's not necessarily all humanitarian, but really it's in about the impact an athlete, you know, may have during a specific time place or over a period of time and that's that's why i've chosen today's athlete we're we're gonna hop back in in the time machine and we're gonna visit the year 1947 you know and obviously that's a huge year in american sports you know notably we we know a guy named jackie robinson in major league baseball yeah yeah but there was also something special that happened in the nba you know then known as the basketball association of america except nobody seemed to care 
there wasn't a story to be told about this player. There wasn't media coverage. You know, you look back at this time, it's as if this athlete never existed, which is why today I want to tell the listeners a brief but powerful story about Watt Masaka. Oh, yeah. Now, <clears throat> Masaka, you know, a second generation Japanese American, was born in Ogden, Utah, 1923. His family experienced substantial poverty. They lived in the basement of his father's barber shop. Now, as an Asian American during that time, you know this well, and so many of our listeners probably do. Watt experienced, you know, segregation in all facets of his life. You know, most Asian children were excluded from extracurricular activities. They're forced to form their own baseball and basketball leagues if you know they wanted to be something uh, part of something competitive. And you know, Masaka noted that he and his family were refused service in restaurants. And that, you know, citizens and neighbors would literally cross the street so they wouldn't risk contact to them, you know, on the sidewalks. But even with all this, Masaka still played sports and excelled at basketball. He attended Ogden High School and led them to a state championship in 1940 and a regional championship in 1941. Now, immediately after graduation during World War II, we we know what was going on in the world, especially for Asian Americans, right? Um, yeah, the, yeah. There was a time in this country where Japanese Americans were being forcibly removed from society and put into internment camps. But Masaka was fortunate enough to continue his education and, and went to Weber College. And at the same time, he led their basketball team to two championships. And he was named 1942's Junior College Postseason MVP. And in 1943, he was named the Weber College Athlete of the Year. Now, you're you're hearing this and thinking, okay, he was on some good teams and he won some minor awards. But you have to remember, this was not the norm for Asian athletes or for non-Caucasian athletes at this time in our world, right? Yeah, yeah. So after Weber College, Masaka enrolled at the University of Utah and, of course, joined the Utes basketball team. They finished 18-3 and three in his first season, and they were invited to the NCAA tourney and the NIT, which they chose the latter due to its stature at the time. The team lost to Kentucky in the first round, but was actually given a second chance to play in the NCAA tourney due to Arkansas having to withdraw because of a, a team accident that they had. So they take advantage of that opportunity, and they win the championship game over Dartmouth in overtime. Two oh, nights wow. later, you know, Masaka's Utes play the NIT champion St. John's at Madison Square Garden in a exhibition, and they beat them as well. So wow. at this point, going all the way back to high school, all Watt Masaka has experienced as being a champion every consecutive year. But his illustrious college career was about to be put on hold. Not too long after that appearance uh, in that exhibition game at Madison Square Garden, Masaka was drafted for World War II and eventually became a staff sergeant during his two-year stint. Now, after those two years, he returns right back to the University of Utah and leads them to their second national championship in four years. Wow. Again, they were invited to the NIT championship, and again, they captured a title winning the 1947 NIT championship. Picked up right where he left off, after literally going somewhere else, having to, you know, serve a country that wasn't very generous to his own people and uh, comes right back and continues that streak of, of winning. Now, all of this winning's great, 
But Masaka was about to do something historical. He was drafted by the New York Knicks in the 1947 draft. And when he made his debut, he became the very first non-Caucasian player in U.S. professional basketball history. The, wow. The, the first African-American didn't play in the NBA until three years after Masaka's appearance. Now, you would think such a historical happening would receive widespread recognition, media attention, something, but it didn't. There weren't press conferences, there were no interviews, commemorations, absolutely nothing. And the craziest part about Masaka is that his pro, his pro career lasted three games, Lefty. Three games for the New York Knicks. He wow. scored seven points total, and the Knicks cut him mid-season. And his belief, and you know, the majority belief is that they had too many guards on the team and didn't need him, right? You know, Masaka was quoted as saying later on in life that he, he never felt discriminated against by his teammates or opposing players, but that he also didn't interact with that many people in the league. You know, so he did find one friend, though, and that was his white teammate, Carl Braun, who was a five-time All-Star in NBA championship, and he was a player coach. After being cut by the New York Knicks, he received an offer to play for the Harlem Globetrotters, but he declined. He, he went back to Utah. He finished earning his degree in engineering. He stated at the time the salary for a rookie and an engineer at the time weren't much different. So, you know, Lefty, you, you, you heard Watt Masaka's story. Do you believe that his short career is just, you know, a small snippet of overcoming adversity and, and being able to push yourself and excel? Or, or do you believe that Wataru Misaka in some way opened a door in basketball that is just never discussed and these accomplishments are truly underrated? Yeah, I think absolutely, um, you know, underrated accomplishments. I think lots of people uh, think about the color barrier in the NBA as, you know, Earl Lloyd in 1950, um, who's been sure. enshrined in the Hall of Fame despite, you know, being a all right but not great basketball player, but being recognized as as that you know barrier breaker um but you know being being remembered as that barrier breaker and, and being enshrined in the hall of fame because of it um you know Wat Masaka is not a name that most people know he's not discussed in any way really um right you know and part of that might be from you know playing for utah in the 40s sure um, right but at the same time you know uh i don't think you can understate uh you can overstate, you know, just how how big that was to to you know join professional basketball at that time. Right, definitely. I I think for myself and just a little background. Obviously, myself, I'm an Asian American. You know, growing up, it it really wasn't about trying to find an Asian American or an Asian uh, NBA player that you could look up to. Right. Um, not for me, but for so many people, there are. There is that, you know, uh, goal of finding that player that you can relate to on a personal level, uh, on an ethnic, uh, you know, uh, ethnic level, and also, you know, just because you enjoy watching them. Now, we've seen players like, you know, Yao Ming. We've talked about Asian Americans specifically. We talked about guys like Jeremy Lin, who came onto the scene and blew up the world also for the New York Knicks. You know, currently, 
We've got two Filipino-American basketball players in Jalen Green uh, on the Houston Rockets and and also Jordan Clarkson for the Utah Jazz that are, are playing incredibly right now. You know, I think what's most important about this story is that like you said, we had uh, uh, a race barrier in this country and that we overcame. And still to this day, you know, the the University of Utah didn't retire Masaka's number 20 jersey until this year, January of this year. He, he passed away, unfortunately, uh, two years ago at the age of 95. He would have been 97 years old. If he was still around receiving, you know, his, his number required. I mean, this was, this is pretty historical, right? But yeah. Yeah. When you think about the, the way that many other athletes are memorialized, especially during their life, um, you know, if you've ever been to any kind of college game, numbers are retired, like for no reason whatsoever. Absolutely. Here's, here's somebody who um, was the best player on the team who led them to a national championship. Um, and still didn't get that recognition uh, right until you know 70 years later it it's incredible right I mean it a, a person of historic significance not only that to take a look and say okay this man was actually what you would consider you know on uh, on paper an American patriot as yeah, well yeah you know he really did everything and had the respect and the quality of what you would look for in not only an athlete, but as a human being, right? And essentially overcame a lot of adversity to become a, a normal, successful, career-oriented oriented person. And still to this day, you know, it's 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 just been a slow build. And I, I find it to be just unfortunate, you know? And like I said, this, this hit a little bit close to home for me, being an Asian American and, and understanding that it's it's not common. You know, if you went to your average everyday fan, how many Asian Americans in major sports, you know, can you name, especially if we're talking the NBA or we're talking the NFL? It's yeah, very difficult. Yeah. And I just one day I hope to see that change. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's it's unfortunate that, you know, uh, of all of the, you know, storied athletes of, you know, Asian American descent, you know, Wapasaka is just not in the conversation. Never. Um, and it's, it really is a, you know, a disservice to, to all basketball fans. Definitely. Definitely. I, I think we both agree that the Watt Masaka story and, and his career and his accomplishments uh, are completely underrated. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. And we are back. All right. So if you're talking about, uh, Wat Misaka, uh, I'm gonna go in a completely different direction here. Let's do it. You know, when I was when I was trying to figure out, you know, who or what to cover on this story, I stumbled upon an old ESPN article that tried to kind of systematically and pseudo scientifically rank the most difficult sports in the world. Hmm. This article, published in ESPN in 2004, ranked the 60 toughest sports in the world from boxing to fishing by you know measures like endurance durability and hand-eye coordination yeah you know well well i think the list was interesting i was surprised at how long some of the sport or how low sorry how low some of the sports were ranked when it comes to toughness hmm. you know for example 
distant swimming was 10 spots below badminton. <laughs> well, you know, I guess that's a matter of opinion, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But apparently not. There are 10 categories of <laughs> points. But, uh, you know, one of the biggest surprises on that list was the placement of water polo at number 12. Mm-hmm. You know, understandably, water polo is a sport that, uh, you know, most fans likely don't view a lot of. Uh, right. And honestly, is really difficult to watch as a spectator, you know? Yeah. Most of the action happens under the water. Right. Um, you know, and even fewer have ever played water polo. You know, it's right. very yeah. popular in Europe, specifically, you know, Hungary. Uh, and in the United States, it's often relegated to, you know, very wealthy areas. Right. That being said, water polo is one of the few full contact sports that is played without any type of player protection. Right. You know, couple, couple with that really high injury risk. The sport requires intense teamwork and strategy that is compounded by the fact that it's played in a pool and athletes are literally treading water for the entirety of the game. Um, and, and that yeah. really doesn't exist in any other mainstream American sports. Right. Um, but I, I don't really just want to talk about water polo today. I'd like to talk about one of the greatest and most accomplished water polo players of all time. And for a very nice change of pace, this is someone we can actually still watch dominate their sport today. Oh, all right. Today, I'd like to talk about Maggie Steffens. Maggie Steffens. All right. This is a change of pace. Yeah. So so one could say that Steffens was destined to play water polo. Her father, Carlos, represented Puerto Rico in the Pan American Games <clears throat> and then went on to lead UC Berkeley to a national championship in 1977 en route to becoming a three-time All-American and the Pac-12 Player of the Year. Oh. You know, Maggie's older sister, Jessica, was a star at Stanford, uh, redshirting her freshman year to train and compete with the U.S. national team in the 2008 Beijing Olympics. You know, just a family of water polo stars. Sure, athletes, right, great. Yeah, but not to be done, like outdone by all of the success of her family, Maggie joined the senior national team in 2010 to compete in the FINA Water Polo World Cup and the FINA World League Super Final, netting a goal in the championship game at only 17 years old and leading the U.S. to their first World Cup since 1979, scoring the winning goal in the World League Super Final. Wow, that's that's a that's that that's that's big, right? Yeah, yeah, the, the highest level of competition outside of the Olympics. Exactly. So, in 2011, Stefan led the U.S. women to another World League Superfinal Championship and a championship in the Pan American Games, in which she again scored the winning goal. In 2012, after capturing another World League Superfinal Championship <laughs> and leading all scores in the tournament, Stefan's had her eyes on the London Olympics. You know, still very young. Sure. You know, only 19 years old. Um, you know... Right out of the gate, Stephens made a presence felt, tying a single-game record by scoring seven goals and setting the record for most goals in a debut in her first ever game in the Olympics. The, Crazy. the, the height of competition. You know, yeah. Stephens also yeah. set the record for most goals in an Olympic tournament with 21 oh. in only six games while leading the U.S. to their first gold medal, men or women's, in water polo since the sports edition over a century prior. Men's water polo was added to the Olympics in 1900. 
Um, That's unbelievable. And no U.S. team had ever won a gold medal. That's unbelievable. Wow. That complete dominance of the sport at only 19 years old led Steffens to be named the best female water polo of 2012 by FINA and an Olympic MVP. Wow. You know, so after that Olympics performance, Steffens returned to start her freshman season at Stanford, leading the Cardinal to their second place NCAA finish, becoming an All-American, and being named to the All-NCAA tournament team in 2013. (laughs) Coming wow. back from the Olympics as the best player in the world, um, just to just to settle in in college. <laughs> right, exactly. Good old NCAA championship. Why not? In 2014, she led the U.S. to another World Cup, another World League title, and helped Stanford finally win that NCAA tournament. Jeez. All told at Stanford, Steffens led the team to three national championships, winning two individual NCAA MVP NCAA tournament MVP awards, all while splitting time with the U.S. national team. She again stepped away from Stanford in 2016 to train and prepare for the Olympics in Rio. Mm-hmm. Um, and unsurprisingly, Steffens picked up exactly where she left off. The U.S. coasted into a second consecutive gold medal. And again, Steffens led all scorers with 17 goals. Jeez. All, all before graduating college. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So that takes us to, to last year in Tokyo at the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Steffens again was ready to help lead the U.S. to another gold, but early in the second match of the tournament, uh, was hit in the face, breaking her nose and forcing her out of the pool multiple times Ooh. so that medical staff could attempt to stop the bleeding. Jeez. Just, just uh, gruesome stuff. See, sure. See the photos of that online. Oh. Uh, but undeterred, right? Always insistent that she could come back into the game despite literally having a broken nose and uncontrollable bleeding from her face. (laughs) Wow. But, uh, you know, she overcame that injury, scored a goal in that game, and they won. The U.S. won, uh, despite, you know, losing pretty early on. Uh, So coming off the broken nose and other early issues with the team, uh, and the U.S. losing their first Olympic match in women's water polo in 13 years, (laughs) Stefan was back with a vengeance. In the final game of the group stage, needing a win to advance, sporting a black eye and a broken nose, <sighs> Steffens netted four goals against Russia, becoming the all-time leader among women in Olympic water polo scoring with 49 goals. Oh. The U.S. went on to win gold in water polo for the third consecutive time, with Steffen contributing 18 goals and extending her record Olympic scoring to 56 goals in only three tournament appearances. Uh, the, the previous record of 48 goals uh, was captured over four tournament appearances. So, wow. you know, just just insane production Dominance. Um, at, at a very young age. Yeah. So at only 29 years old, it's super likely that Stephens will compete in the 2024 Summer Olympics and of can course. further extend that record in, you know, her historic career. You know, at this point, Steffens is no longer the best player in the world, but is still a phenomenal player and one of the most decorated ever to play, despite being only 29. Sure. You know, all told, Steffens has helped lead the U.S. to three Olympic gold medals in water polo, 10 World League gold medals, three World Cup victories, three gold medals at the Pan American Games, and four consecutive world championships, with the most recent coming this summer. That uh, that's more championships and uh, you know gold medals than 
maybe anybody alive. Sure, right. But, you know, despite all of this recognition and domination, Steffens is still relatively unknown to many sports fans, which kind of leads me uh, to the final question. Do you think Maggie Steffens is underrated? Oh, yeah, completely. We, we've done a couple stories on athletes who have just dominated on an Olympic level, especially at young ages. And, you know, um, for whatever reason, just don't get the recognition they deserve, right? I mean, maybe in the moment there with some coverage, but um, yeah, yeah. it just baffles me. What I find so interesting about, you know, uh, Maggie Steffens is that the accomplishments were before the age of 20, as a teenager. yeah. yeah. Think of yourself. I challenge anyone out there uh, listening who is a fan of his show. Think of where you were at 17, 18, 19 years old, right? Think about your number one, your maturity level, uh, your drive, and to think about, you know, what kind of stage Maggie Steffens was on in yeah. her teen, in the prime of her teenage years, right? And what she did with those opportunities. Not only did she compete at a high level, she was the best, right? And she. Yeah. She was a leader. She stepped up and she was able to achieve. We're still looking at, you know, a plethora of accomplishments. We're talking Olympic gold medals, you know, NCAA championships, uh, you know, uh, World League Super Finals and World Cups, uh, you know, Player of the Year. All before the age of 30. I don't know the longevity of the everyday water polo athlete, but is there a chance, and I haven't looked at the men's stats, that she could go down as the greatest water polo player in the history of the game? Yeah, you know, it's it's very likely. Um, and, it, and it surprises me, right? I mean, we've talked about recently, you know, I talked about Regulatores. Um, yeah. Who maybe is more understandably not a household name because, you know, the, her accomplishments happened before the proliferation of the internet. Sure. And also in Cuba where we don't get a lot of news coverage. Right. But uh, it seems to me that, you know, these historic Olympic athletes tend to always, you know, pick up support from, uh, you know, just general casual fans, you know. Yeah. Every, everybody loves Michael Phelps and Katie Ledecky and, you know, even Chloe Kim, you know, are all household names now because of the accomplishments um, that they've had at the Olympics. But Steffens is not somebody who's kind of breached that gap, which is very interesting to me. Um, and yeah. Maybe part of that is water polo, again, is a, is a more difficult sport to watch as a, as a spectator. But, right. uh, you know, I, I, I just felt like that would be somebody that, that would be a household name. And, and you know, um, Americans especially would be, you know, immensely proud. Drawn to. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, just... There's a reason. I, I mean, the first time I heard this term was uh, from someone who, uh, a friend that I had who was from South Africa and referred to it as water rugby, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's equivalent to the you know, the sport in a body of water, right? Um, if, if you know anything about just swimming or being in water, you know, when you're going through physical therapy, when you're, um, you know, working on endurance uh, and, and, and different skill sets, uh, the reason swimming is so important is because you're using muscles in your body that you don't normally use in every day. You know, it, you can't replicate that uh, in, in other workouts, right? Uh, yeah. Swimming yeah. is a is something that uses your every muscle in your body. 
And um, to be able to do that and to compete, we talked about a black eye, broken nose, things like that happening. Um, it's an intense sport, right? And you basically have what a, a head cover, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you've got you've got a, a swim cap that has a little bit of ear protection. Yeah, you've got a swim cap, right? I mean, it's it's we we have athletes who are making you know forty million dollars a year with helmets and pads and and whatnot who still are are hesitant to get out there because of of how you know difficult the sport is, right? So. I mean, I think that says a lot about, you know, physical toughness and mental toughness. Again, a lot of these accomplishments coming as a teenager competing yeah, a, yeah. A, at a high level on a big stage against uh, other athletes who had been doing it a hell of a lot longer. You know, I, th- I think the resume is extremely impressive. I, I hope she goes down as, as, as the greatest water polo player ever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, you know, it's, she's, she still plays. So it's somebody that you know we can we can still watch. hundred um, percent. We we can still um, e- even if you know I, I I think that because it's such a demanding and uh, you know physical sport the 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 life lifespan is probably not the right word but the the career length is is sure. not the longest in the world but uh, you know people still watch Michael Jordan when he played for the Wizards. Right. Yeah. 100%. Maggie Stephens is, is, is much better than Michael Jordan was for the Wizards still. Um, right. So right. next time uh, next time there's some water polo on TV, check it out. Definitely. Would, lo- would love to see it. Definitely. Uh, so, yeah, we agree. Uh, Maggie Stephens, underrated. Underrated. Awesome. You know, two underrated athletes. Uh, very different. Uh, very different sides of the spectrum today. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, a lot coming up in the world. Uh, totally... Uh, you know, busy time. Uh, it is conference championships coming across, uh, coming up this weekend across NCAA football. Yeah. Any games you're, you're going to be watching anything you're looking out for? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tune in Saturday to the, uh, the Houston St. Mary's game, the number one team. I just want to add, uh, my alma mater, the number one ranked team in the country that, uh, almost lost to Kent state last week, Oh, oh. <laughs> but they're, uh, they're playing, they're playing St. Mary's. If- I was asking if there was any conference championships in NCAA football you were watching this weekend. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know what? Uh, I haven't really taken a look at the schedule uh, too hard, but, uh, you know, I'm definitely going to be tuning in. I know uh, uh, I know that we have, um, what is it, the Utah-USC game? I think. Yeah, that'll be a good one. Yeah, but I think the one I'm really interested in is uh, – seeing Purdue knock off Michigan. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have too much faith in that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would be uh, pretty shocked if, um, you know, something crazy. But, hey, we've seen crazier things. I mean, they, That's true. South Carolina Gamecocks have been on this run where they're beating big teams and, yeah. you know, um, have the same exact – I believe they're also 8-4 uh, as the Boilermakers I mean, are. But um, I mean, yeah. was it last year that Purdue beat – was it two or three different top five teams? Absolutely. You know, so we've seen crazier things that happen. And yeah. I, I think O'Connell is on a, you know, he's having a great season, you know, as their QB and he's making plays happen. You know, um, I I would absolutely love to see Michigan lose a game. So <laughs> uh, I'll I'll be rooting for it. But um, I, I forget who they're playing, but it's uh, yeah, Tulane. Yeah, Tulane. Playing UCF. 
you there you go ucf to land con- conference uh, championship with two ranked teams yeah it uh, that's that's pretty wild you know in the aac so we'll 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 see what happens as far as that goes man do you think uh lsu has any shot of knocking off number one georgia you know i'd like to see it i don't know georgia's a powerhouse it's really hard yeah. to say you know yeah. um georgia just has such a a r- great team you know and they've beat great teams so um you know i haven't seen the line but i'm sure they're 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 pretty big favorites in that but um no i i think georgia's going to come out on top um who else do we have? We have, I think there was another one out there. Uh, Clemson in uh, North Carolina. Yeah. Jeez, man. There's Clem- Clemson, uh, they've been, uh, things have been a little chaotic for them here recently. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> um, there's also Kansas State and TCU. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's a, you know, that's, a, I, I like that matchup. You know, uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, Kansas State, I, I, I'd like to see the Wildcats you know, come up big there, but, um, yeah, you know, TCU is another team, you know, I haven't lost a game. So, well, surprisingly, surprisingly. Right. And then, so. and then finally, in uh, what might actually might be the best game, uh, at least from a purely, you know, fan of the game mm-hmm. standpoint, North Texas and UTSA. Oh yeah. <laughs> University of Texas, San Antonio. Yeah. Pretty even, pretty evenly matched teams. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, might be a, might be a better viewing experience than that, I would absolutely, that's a, you know, that's absolutely a game uh, I would watch. I mean, I watched, uh, uh, jumping on the basketball side, I watched Vanderbilt and VCU last night, a good portion of that game. Right. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, I, I, I'm starting to, uh, you know, appreciate it a bit more. You know? Yeah. Yeah. For, for sure but that i would absolutely tune in you know yeah uh, do you uh I, i'm sorry for cutting you off earlier do you want to circle back to your number one oh hey, yeah team? absolutely <laughs> listen i'm relishing this this is the this is the first time this has happened since 1983 right um it's it's good to see uh it's good to see the uh the cougars basketball come back and uh uh kent state was a wake-up call you know um uh, i think for for the for the team and uh you know i you and i were texting back and forth as this was going on i mean you you made a pretty accurate uh prediction <laughs> on that game it was pretty scary so uh you know um yeah i, I know my crystal ball i know my mid-major basketball <laughs> yeah man that was pretty accurate you know i i said right before that game i said man i'm i'm, I'm, I'm having a yeah i'm a little worried about this kent state team uh you know but uh like I said, they uh, they came out with a close win. Sometimes these things happen, so you know I it's going to be uh, they've got a fairly flexible and and okay schedule. So I think yeah, they'll be able to yeah. carry it. You know, um, yeah, they they very well could go undefeated, right? You know, so we'll we'll see. They um they were in my final four, you know, last bracket year, yeah. last year. So <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll see, man. Is the so I know we talked about the the Purdue basketball team this past week yeah, with those two big win- wins, you know, the two of us are texting about it. Um, is that the biggest jump you can remember in, in top 25 polls in a week? Right, right off the top of my head. Yeah, I, I would say, I mean, God, that that's incredible, man. And I, I told you, I, you know, again, we were talking during that game and I'm like, this team is just playing really well. And yeah. it was yeah. really cool to see uh, a win over, 
over the uh, you know Gonzaga. So yeah, I, well, and you know, kind of uh, tangentially related, the Purdue team led by you know another possible future Asian American NBA player. Well, I oh, should yeah. not say Asian American, Asian Canadian, Asian Canadian. That's right. I had uh, a hell of a and, game too. Yeah, yeah, just a phenomenal player there, Zach Zach Eady. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I love to see it uh, performed really well. Yeah, going back to yeah. Houston, I thought I mentioned that you know uh, Kelvin Sampson, the the head coach, is uh, you know uh, an indigenous, you know one of the few indigenous coaches that we have in in the entire NCAA. Um, you know he's uh, he's uh, uh, a Native American from North Carolina um, and and grew up uh, you know in in that area. So um, you know good to see. Um, Kelvin Sampson having some success with this uh, this Cougars program here. Uh, he's been, yeah, he's been yeah. it's been almost a decade here with the team, so it's uh, yeah. He's a build, he's really turned things around for sure. Absolutely. Well, I know uh, I said we also wouldn't talk too much about the uh, World Cup, but the you know the U.S. has advanced to the round of sixteen. All right, we'll be playing the Netherlands on Saturday morning. Oh, you going to be man. watching that game? You have a prediction? Yeah. You know, um, I'm so nervous about this game. I've gotten to see, you know, I've been keeping an eye, obviously, on the Netherlands. Um, man, they, I, they're they a good team. That's all I can say. I, I think the U.S. is going to, again, make it interesting, but, God, I'm going to get crapped on for this. I, I think the Netherlands are going to win this game. That's That's my prediction. Yeah, you know, it really comes down to whether the U.S. is able to score and then what kind of dumb shit Greg, Greg Berhalter does in the second half? <laughs> what position he'll put us in to uh, just, at, you know, what time in the game it. is he going to bring in Shaq Moore? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Man, he was getting tore up on the social meds, you uh, know. Yeah. Rightfully you think, so. <laughs> do you think we'll actually see uh, um, Gio Reyna, who has really played very little only featured in one game and i was gonna say um i mean how how long has he been out there i mean in totality what are we talking here right Uh, yeah like what 15 minutes maybe 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 so i there's been a lot of chatter about that as well um i don't think we're we'll see we'll see much of him unless there is a situation yeah he's played played seven minutes seven minutes yeah. Well, and, and I think that a lot of, especially after that, that winning goal, um, you know, against Iran, um, I, I don't think a lot of fans want to admit that the, the player that he probably should be subbing on for, Reyna, that is, is mm-hmm. Pulisic, who has, has not looked all that great a lot of the time. Sure, um, yeah. And uh, somebody that, that Reyna should be playing for. Uh, right. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a consensus. I think that, uh, you know... Um, it's just shocking that uh, I, I knew it was a small amount of time, but I, seven minutes is pretty, pretty atrocious, right? Yeah, yeah. And for one of the most athletic players on the team, and uh, you know, one of the best ball handlers on the team, you know, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I don't think that there's an injury there preventing him from playing. Right. Uh, so pretty, pretty weird stuff. Definitely. You know, I. I I wanted to mention this too, you know, I mentioned it the other day, but, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, Brazilian legend Pele is in the hospital right now, you know, fighting, uh, some sort of pneumonia, I believe it is. 
Um, but 82 years old, you know, um, this is not the way, you know, I wanted to see him uh, in the headlines during the World Cup. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, I believe he's had, um, like, he got diagnosed with cancer last year, correct? Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he had colon cancer, I believe it was, for sure. So yeah, um, It's been a rough road, man. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I, the news is positive, as, as yeah. far as I've heard. You know, I mean, yeah. there's... It doesn't seem like there's uh, there's not a real emergency. It's just you know, uh, you know, fighting pneumonia and whatnot. So that's good. But uh, yeah, get well soon, Pele. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's gonna do it for us today. We'll have a special episode next week. Where we got a guest coming on. We're gonna talk about uh, the World Cup and some oh, other yeah. stuff. Uh, but you can follow us, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcast, wherever podcasts can be found. Be sure to leave a review uh, or some stars. It'd be helpful for us. Yeah. Uh, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash underrated pod. You can follow us on Twitter at underrated pod. That's at under underscore rated underscore pod. And on TikTok at the same username at yeah. under underscore rated underscore pod. Uh, that's all we've got. Yeah. Until next time.